All right, everybody. Welcome to New Life. Glad to have you guys here with us. If you would, go ahead and find a seat. That would be amazing. I would appreciate that. Hey, listen, let me introduce myself. My name is Jeff Baker. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at New Life. It is a privilege to have you come and worship with us today. I hope that you're excited to be at New Life, excited to be here with friends and family, ready to worship God and see God do amazing things in your life. Amen? Come on. That's right. For the three people in the main auditorium that are with me, um, I also know that everybody down in the venue is with me for sure. Uh, they're cheering loudly right now because they're excited about what God's doing in their life and what he's going to do today, as well as all those that are worshiping with us right now live at our North Platte campus. Uh, we are one church in multiple locations, um, and you're sitting in one of four of our worship services. You're in, sitting in one of our three uh, actual auditoriums uh, that we have and today we are, we are one church in multiple locations. It's pretty exciting. Uh, I love this time in which we live. I love what God's doing at New Life. I love the ability to use this kind of technology. You know what? Each of our locations, we have a campus pastor. We have live worship that's happening there. And then we sync up together with the sermon. And that allows us all just to stay on the same spiritual page. It's pretty fantastic, man. So I'm excited what God's doing. Glad to have you guys with us. And again, want to say hello to all of you that are out in North Platte. Today, if you're wondering why is this white leather chair um, on our stage, I brought that personally from my house so that we could teach you about what it means to live second. <clears throat> I know when I say things like, you know, who wants, to, who wants to have a race and come in second? I'm sure all of you are like, oh, me, man. I mean, I just love coming in second. What if your entire life was lived with you coming in second? No matter what you did, no matter how you rigged it, no matter what rules you set up, you always came in second. Like, what if you were the trumpet player in high school and you only, you only got to play, you know, second chair? What if your scores in school, you know, in the classroom you, could only get you second? They could never get you first. You know, what if you were born into a family as the second child of four? You know, there's no change in that, right? You know, what if, um, what if you were always the second person to cross the finish line? Always. It didn't matter what you did. You always came in second. How would that make you feel? For some of you, you'd be like, man, I'm just glad to be in the race, dude. I mean, seriously. <laughs> you know, I'm just glad I could even do it. Um, of course, you would be wondering to yourself what everybody would be wondering. If all your life, from a childhood all the way through adulthood, it was always second, you'd be saying, come on, when do I get a break here? When do I get to be first, right? Thank you for agreeing with me. I'm sure that everybody in North Platte agreed, right? But um, in here, yes, agreeing. Um, of course you would. That, that would always be looming in the back of your mind. Why? The reason why is because we live in a society that it's either first place or it doesn't matter. I mean, think with me of all the great things that have happened. Let me just pull one out of the hat really quick. Who's the first man, you know, to walk on the moon? Yeah. And the second one fades into the distant, right? The third and the fourth, don't even remember their name probably, unless you're one of those guys. You know who you are. So first, first gets remembered. First gets the prize. First is the one that everyone's attention is drawn to. 
Even Paul recognized this dynamic. It was alive in his culture and his society as well. I mean, take a look at what he has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, don't you realize that in a race, everyone win, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to what? Run to win. Of course. You know, only one person. He, Paul realized everybody runs, but only one person's going to get the prize. That's the person that finishes first. So what does it really mean to win then? What does it mean to win? If you're talking about the physical, well, then it, it goes to everything we're, we're dealing with right now. It, to win means you have to come in first physically. You've got to cross the line first. You've got to get the highest score, so on and so forth. But what does it mean to win spiritually? Is it being first? Is it being the person that knows the most scripture in this room? Is it being the person that prayed the longest in this room? Is it the person that still has a perfect record of church attendance on a Sunday from the beginning of the year? Are those the things that really make you first? Are those the things that really make you the winner? See, in your spiritual life, there's this dynamic that goes anti-culture. It goes against the grain. It's if you want to be a winner spiritually and get the prize, then you're going to have you're going to have to strive for second. Why? Because living second allows Jesus to be first. That's what it means. If you want to win spiritually, if you want to win, I mean, you want to win. If there's this tenacity on the inside of you to be a winner, then you're going to have to go, I want to be second. And you're going to have to stand up on a platform like this and to say, I am second. And with a big smile on your face, no matter how weird it sounds to others. Because that's the way you win, because you win with Jesus being first. This whole teaching series that we're going to be going through over these next few weeks, all the way through the end of October. So man, if you want, if you want to be here for this entire thing, it goes from this Sunday all the way to the last Sunday in October. It's all about challenging you in different places of your life to live as second so that Christ can live first. Today, we're going to be dealing with the subject matter of trusting God with your wisdom and your knowledge. Your wisdom and your knowledge, what you have right now, all the accolades and all of the, you know, the letters that come after your name or come before your name or you know, any of the certificates that hang on your wall in your office or are filed away in a filing cabinet or any of the experiences that you have, it's taking your wisdom and your knowledge and laying it down and letting God, let God's wisdom and God's knowledge direct your life. That's where we're going today. And in this teaching series, we're going to be using two books of the Bible, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. They're Old Testament books. They've got some incredible stories and accounts of who God is and what God does in people's lives. If you don't know where 1 or 2 Kings is, please open your Bible up to the beginning and go to the table of contents. Now, if you have a smartphone, please, please go to, um, you know, version. Search on your Bible app for, um, you know, version. Download that Bible app because that Bible app will give you like 40 different, you know, versions of the Bible. Plus, we broadcast live slides on that app every single Sunday. We've been doing it for, you know, the last few years. Um, so it's nothing new. But if you do that, then you can get the scripture that we're using and you can get the points that we have and additional resources. And you can actually keep that throughout the rest of the week. It stays live for the entire week for you. So please utilize resources like that as we're getting ready to go on a journey. Today, 
The white chair is going to be a place where two different people sit every single Sunday. The first one is going to be somebody from our drama team, and they're going to give us the account, the biblical account of what we're going to be preaching. Later on in the sermon, I'm going to invite someone from our congregation who's going to come up. They're going to sit in that chair, and they're going to share with you a very transparent testimony about what God's done in their life and how they've moved from living as first to living as second, letting Christ rule and dominate their life. So this chair is a powerful place because today we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 1 through 11. So I could either, you know, read all of those verses to you and you could get some popcorn and, um, you know, some soda and kick back for a while because it would take a while, or we can do this in a more creative manner. So today it's going to be a paraphrased version of 1 Kings chapter 1 through chapter 11 as we start the journey of I am second and we start looking at how God wants you and me to lay down our earthly wisdom and our earthly knowledge and start seeking him for his. Take a listen to this scripture. My name is Solomon. My father David was king for 40 years. When he became frail and ill, my brother Adonijah took the opportunity to proclaim himself as king. He tried to steal what my father had promised to me. He gathered chariots and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him. He sacrificed animals and invited all of our brothers and all of the royal officials of Judah. I knew he was up to something when he didn't even invite me. The prophet Nathan went to my mother Bathsheba to tell her what was happening. She went to my father because she knew that if Adonijah became king, we would surely die. So she went to him and pleaded for my case to be on, so I could be on the throne. My father quickly took action to appoint me king. He told them, to put me on his mule, lead me into Gihon, blow the trumpets, and proclaim, Long live King Solomon! He then told told them to put me on his throne. When they shouted and rejoiced, the noise was like, imagine Memorial Stadium on game day times a thousand. The noise was so loud that it shook my body. And it shook the earth. And my brother Adonijah quickly realized that he was in trouble and fled like a cockroach. I had become king before my father's passing. He told me who to treat well and who to punish. There were people to be removed from positions and people to be appointed to those positions. In the beginning of my reign as king, the Lord appeared to me in a dream. He told me that I could ask him for whatever I wanted and he would give it to me. I told him that I wanted wisdom and God gave it. That wisdom was immediately tested when two prostitutes came to me with a dilemma. They both had infants. One night, one of the women rolled over on her infant and it died. She snuck into the other woman's room and took that sleeping infant in exchange for hers. In the morning, the other mother immediately recognized the deceit. So they came before me for a decision. My suggestion, take a sword and cut the baby in two. Each woman could have half. 
The one mother said, go ahead. The other mother said, no, please, please, she can have the baby. I knew immediately, immediately that this was her child. With that wisdom, I looked over my kingdom and saw what was needed. We needed all levels of government. We needed governors and mayors, generals and armies. I appointed managers of the palace. I had established a way for my court. Twelve district governors and one manager above them. Each district would provide my court with food for one month on an annual rotation. With the, with the wisdom that I received, I spoke 3,000 proverbs and wrote 1,005 songs. I hungered and thirsted for knowledge. I found great joy in teaching and learning. Many people came to learn from me. I began to acquire the materials needed to build the temple. I drafted three times the number of workers and created a schedule that would allow them to be home once in a while, not home for long periods of time. And I recognized that family was important. Family was their top priority. I understood that a nation's strength is in direct proportion to the strength of their families. We began to build the temple my fourth year as king. It took seven more years for the construction to be complete. When it was completed, I summoned the elders of Israel to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the temple. They brought the Ark of the Covenant, the tent of meeting, and all the furnishings that belonged in it. When they placed the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place and withdrew, a cloud of smoke filled the temple of the Lord. The glory of the Lord filled that place. Can you imagine if the glory of the Lord filled this room right now? What would that feel like? We would feel love and peace and joy and power. And The priests were so overcome that they could not finish their task. So I completed the prayer. I had a healthy respect for the promise that God made to my father David. I honored my father through the building of the temple. Eleven years I worked to honor my father. The celebration took 14 days. 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats were slaughtered as sacrifice. Now, 22,000 cattle would be worth roughly $44 million today. When that was complete, the Lord appeared to me again. He asked me to follow him, to walk with him, and honor no other gods before him. If I disobeyed him, Israel would be lost to the land that we owned. The Queen of Sheba came to me. She asked me very tough questions. I had the answers. I received 25 tons of gold annually, which today would be worth $820 million. My drinking cups and utensils were made of gold. Silver was worthless in my day. I was the richest and wisest king on this earth. But I began to disobey God. I married many foreign women, women from the tribes that the Lord had forbidden us to marry from. And I began to experiment and dabble in the worship of other gods, the gods that my wives worshipped. I knew that it was wrong, but I did it anyway. And I paid a price. The Lord allowed my adversaries to rise up against me. In my old age, 
I relied on my own wisdom and strength instead of the Lord's. I, I thought I knew it all. I began my life so righteously, I wish I would have ended it that way. My name is Solomon, and for most of my life, I lived a second. talk about this this issue if you want to learn how to live as second and you want jesus to live as first you're gonna to have to start trusting god with your earthly wisdom and your knowledge you're gonna to have to lay that down and you're gonna to have to do what solomon did he started asking god for his wisdom that's what he did the bible says that you know ask and you shall receive it also says ask anything according to god's will and it will be done both on this earth and in the heavens there's one thing i'm 100 percent confident of today and that is god wants you and me to ask him for his wisdom and his knowledge to accomplish what he's called you and me to do today he wants you and i to lay down our earthly wisdom knowledge and what we've gained through experiences on this earth and begin to be asking him for what he can do in us. Now Solomon, when Solomon asked that of God, he was 20 years old. 20 years old. I mean, just think of it for a moment. What were you doing when you were 20 years old? And what were you asking God for? See, God loves Solomon, but he gave him a test that day when he said, Solomon, here's an open slate. You ask for anything that you want to. You know how Solomon responded? He responded with these words in 1 King. 1 Kings 3 says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made me king instead of my father. Who made him king? Not a trick question. He recognizes, God, you're the one who made me king instead of my father. But I'm like a what? What does he say here? I'm like a little child who doesn't know his way around. That's important. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, your people, by the way, a nation so great and numerous that they can't even be counted. Give me an understanding heart. Give me wisdom so that I can govern, again, whose people are they? God's people, so I can govern your people well. And know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself, who am I, God? How can I do this by myself? How am I able to govern this great people of whose? Yours. See, if you want to ask for real godly wisdom and you want to lay down your wisdom and your knowledge that you've gained on this earth and let the power of God truly lead your life where he's first and you're second, then there's three critical things that Solomon did here that we're going to have to begin to apply to our life. First is he, he asked God for wisdom with a humble heart. He said words like, I'm like a child. I, I don't know anything. I just don't know. I mean, I, I, I can't put all these things together. I'm like a child. And you know what's healthy for you and me, no matter how old we are, whether we're 20 years old like Solomon, or we're 45, or we're 65, is that God wants us to keep coming back to him like a child. In fact, God's word says that childlike faith is what God's looking for. Childlike faith, the kind of faith that just trusts him, obeys him, believes in him, but also recognizes you're great. <laughs> I'm little. 
I don't have it all figured out. I'm like a child. The second thing that Solomon did, though, was he asked God with a desperate heart. He said words like this, a nation that's so great and numerous, they can't even be counted. God, I mean, do you know what you have here? And do you know what you asked me to do? I find it amazing that when we are in desperate times, we tend to ask God for things, right? When you're at the deep end of the, of the pool of life and you can't feel the bottom, you, you tend to kind of run to God and you begin to ask him to rescue you or to help you. But when you can feel the bottom of the pool of life and you're like, oh, I got this one, I got this one. God wants us to be the kind of people that are so desperate for him that if we're standing in the shallow end of life, like we really have it, that we would be saying to him, God, I am desperate for you to lead me. You know what these words remind me of? Let me put this picture in your head. Basically what, what God's looking for out of our hearts is for us to come before God and protest. Protest God. I'm not talking about standing there with a picket sign going, you know, God, you, you're this, you're that. I'm talking about protest. Like, I will not move unless, God, you lead me. I'm that desperate. Because if I keep leading myself, destruction and disaster is going to be my way. I'm going to protest moving from this moment until you lead me. Not with a defiant heart. Not with a rebellious heart. But with a desperate heart. Have, have you ever sat down and protested in that manner? A guy by the name of Moses did one day. Moses is being led, you know, by God in the desert, and the people of Israel are following him. There's a million plus people out there, and they, they are just rebellious. God, in his, in his word in Exodus uh, chapters 32 and 33, actually calls these people a stiff-necked people. He basically says, you guys just want to do things your way, your wisdom, your knowledge, and you forget about me. I'm the one who does all these miracles for you, but you trust only in yourself. And God says to him, Moses, I made a promise to you and I'm going to keep the promise, but this, this, this is the deal. I'm not going with you. My spirit's not going with you anymore because you guys have torqued me off, basically. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send an angel. An angel's going to go with you. You know what Moses does? He protests. Yeah, he sits down on the ground, he crosses his legs, and he basically chains himself to that spot, and he goes, no, we're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere, God, unless your spirit leads us. It's a hungry, desperate heart that says, God, unless you show up, and unless you lead me, unless you guide me, unless you fill my heart with your wisdom and knowledge, which is beyond what this world can have, then my, I'm just going to cause destruction. So a humble heart, a desperate heart. But Solomon also asks God for his wisdom to make God look good, not just make Solomon look good. I'm afraid that all too often when we ask God for his assistance and his wisdom and knowledge and when we're dealing with things, it's really more so that we look good. The motive tends to be more about people will see me, they'll see how good I am, they'll see how much I've got figured out. Many times that's even the verbiage that we use and we accolade ourselves instead of you know, promoting God. God's looking for the kind of heart that comes and says, God, it's your people. It's your nation. It's your mission. It's your calling. My life is yours. It's not mine. God, fill me with your wisdom so that you'll get the praise, so that you'll get the glory. It's not about me. It's about you and it's about your kingdom. 
I want you to think with me. If you were 20 years old and God came to you and he gave you a blank slate and he says to you, hey, Jeff Baker, hey, whatever your name is, you just ask me for anything and I'll give it to you. What would you ask God for? Some of you are 20 years old. Are there anybody 20 years old here? Let me hear you. Okay, two people. That's good. One that raised their hand. These 20-year-olds are so respectful these days. So respectful these days. When I, was, when I was 20 years old, I probably was not like that. Some of you are trying to remember back to what 20 was like. That's okay, too. I understand that. We're all at different stages of life, right? So go back to 20 years old, and God shows up to you in a dream, and he says to you, hey, wake up. You get to choose anything. It's like God, the genie in the bottle, which God is not, by the way. But God comes to you, genie in the body, bottle style, and poof, out he comes, and he says, hey, you get one wish. What, what do you want to pick? Don't be like the guy who makes that TV commercial that says, I want a million bucks. You remember that one? And then the genie puts like the million, you know, like deer out there. That's not, that's not cool. Don't do that. So God gives you one, one shot at this. What do, you, what do you say? Do you really say wisdom? Or do you say maybe like what I would think instantly at that stage of life? God, seriously? Okay, check it out. This is one ask, but it's really long. It's going to be said in one breath, right? So does that count? I'm going to make a run-on sentence. Is that, is that cool, God? Because there's a little bit, but it all kind of goes under the same category. You know, Lamborghini, Porsche, Ferrari. It all goes under that same category. I was just wondering if maybe four-wheel drive. You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, convertible. Can, can you hook me up, God? Like, can you hook me up? It would, be, it would be materialistic. It would be selfish. It would be primarily self-centered. Now, if you're going through a crisis, then you might ask for something different. Heal my spouse. Provide. Provide for my kids. It really is going to depend on where you're at in your mindset and where you're at in life. But what does that tell you about you? We are prone to be in first place all the time. Prone to be in first place. And what we have to learn how to do is live contently at second so that Christ can be first. So let me ask you, what area of your life do you need God's wisdom and knowledge to lead you? What, what, what are you leading right now that you need God's wisdom and knowledge to help you lead it with a greater level of excellence than what you're doing right now? What is that thing? Is it your marriage? Because, man, God's got wisdom and knowledge to help heal your marriage and to make it the most dynamic marriage you've ever had. Is it to raise your kids? God's got the wisdom to do that. You're like, man, I've read five books and I've gone to two conferences. I still don't have the answer. Have you sought, have you really truly protested and just sat there and said, God, I'm not going to do another thing unless, unless I sense your spirit speak to me? Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's honoring God with your finances and finally putting God first. Maybe signing up for our Financial Peace University class. Or maybe it's taking you know, a tithe challenge and to start honoring God with a, with a tenth of your income. I mean, I, I don't know what it is that God's saying to you, but it's definitely going to be built around honoring him. And if you've been leading your finances and they're all out of control, I would suggest 
Why don't you protest and say, God, we're not going to make another financial decision unless you sp- until you speak to us about our current finances and we start obeying you with that and we're going to let you lead us from that point on. Maybe it's about you know, the management of people, the people that are underneath you that work for you or that you oversee, that you supervise and how to lead them in, in the proper way because right now you're just frustrated and you just want to fire everybody. Maybe it's your business, making wise business decisions. You know, maybe it's a family crisis that you're dealing with. You need God's wisdom versus what you've been trying because what you've been trying just keeps running into dead end and it keeps running into the same wall over and over and over again and you're getting frustrated and you're about ready to throw your hands up and give up. Or maybe it's just simply about this, something that we can all be on the same page with, your personal life. Have you found yourself spiritually protesting and saying, I'm not gonna make another foolish decision in my life I'm going to surrender my life completely and let God lead me. Or are you one of those types of people that are going, God, I'm going to be going this direction. If you want to interrupt me, by all means, come on. There's a big difference between the person that goes, I'm just going to go do my thing, God, and and if you interrupt me, cool, versus the person that says, I'm protesting, I'm putting down the stakes right here, I'm chaining myself to that altar, and I'm going to keep seeking you because I keep making foolish decisions with my own earthly wisdom and knowledge that keeps undercutting everything I'm wanting to become as a godly man or a godly woman. I'm suggesting to you, stop the madness and start protesting and sit down and say, God, I'm not moving from this place unless you do something dynamic in my life. I know that sounds different than probably a lot of things you've ever heard before. But it's about the motive of the heart. God wants to fill you with his wisdom and knowledge. God cares about you. God cares about the details of your life. He cares about what you're wrestling with right now. He cares about what you're going to face this week. And he's got the solutions. But God's looking for humble heart, desperate hearts, and hearts that are willing to promote him over themselves. That's what God's looking for. So if you're going to be someone that learns how to really trust God with your wisdom and your knowledge then you're also going to need to be aware of worldly confidence. That worldly confidence when all of what you think is so smart and so intelligent goes to your head and you think you've got it all figured out. It's a moment like that that the enemy comes in and he starts attacking because he's like, I got you right where I want you. You think you're in control. When we live as first, we have no covering. You put yourself out on the front line. You're the first one on a battlefield to walk through the doorway. You're the first one to take the shots. When you live a second, there's always someone else that walks through the doorway first. His name is Jesus. You get covering. You, you submit yourself to Christ. He becomes the covering of your life. Solomon was doing that for years of his life, and he was growing in wisdom that was so profound that the Bible says that he was smarter than anybody. And it lists off all of these names from wise people to the east, to the west, down to Egypt. It says all of the kings of the earth. He was wiser than all the kings of the earth. Solomon was out of control wise. Here's a few things that the Bible says that he was in our day and in our language. He was a botanist and a zoologist, an ornithologist, a herpetologist, an ichthyologist, He was an architect and an engineer and a mathematician and an astronomer and a statistician. And he was a judge and he was a leader of leaders. And that's just the things that I know how to pronounce. It's the things that are talked about in the Bible about what his expertise was and how smart he was. 
He was beyond what this world was. In fact, he was so wise that kings would do this. Take a look. Kings from every nation, they would send their ambassadors to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. Why? Because they wanted to gain some of it. They had situations they were facing. They wanted to somehow not get left behind by Solomon and his reign. So they kept seeking and hungering. What happens to a person that has that kind of fame? You know, what really could happen? What kind of effect could that kind of fame and power have? What if, what if you were that person? And what if all of the nations of the world were sending ambassadors to your house, 2004 West 42nd Street in Kearney, Nebraska? That's my house, but your house. You put your, you put your own address there, right? What if they were sending them to you and knocking on your door and coming in and sitting down in your living room and they had questions about how to govern and how to lead? How would you feel? I know what some of you would say. Finally, someone has recognized my wisdom. Finally. Finally. It is about time. I can't believe it. Man, it's taken all these years. Seriously? I mean, what, what would you do with that kind of fame? I think one of the things you would battle with, that Solomon battled with, was continuing to humble yourself and remember where that wisdom actually came from. It would be so easy for it to go to your head and for you to start thinking, look how smart I am. Look how good I am. You know, i tell you another thing would be this. You would start really growing in your worldly confidence of you give answers and the results are good. And that would grow into a pride and into an arrogance that would just reek. I mean, have you ever been in the presence of a pretentious person, a person that is the self-promoter? You ever been in that type of a presence? I'm talking about the, the kind of person that you go to them and to talk about your life, but it always ends up being about their life. You know that kind of person? You know the kind of person that when you meet them, that all they do is start telling you about all their accolades and how they've accomplished this and they've got that training and they've got this certificate and they, they're, they've got this status and here's their title and here's their experience and all of that's like in the first three minutes. And you're like, hi, my name's Jeff. I don't even know your name. You know what I'm saying? It's that pretentious, self-promoting type of a person. The person that is looking at you and it says if they're really listening but they're not, really all they're doing is waiting for you to stop talking so that they can start talking again. Many times they'll interrupt you and they'll cut you off. It's a person that you're, you're trying to share your heart with but they aren't really engaged with you. You know the kind of person I'm talking about? This kind of person could have a wisdom but it's covered up by their blindness. Their blindness because they've decided they're going to live as first. And when they're living as first, that arrogance and that pride and that worldly confidence, this comes off as this self-promoting, you know, disgusting, reeking smell. That person might even have some really good things to say. But because of their over-the-top worldly confidence and arrogance, it just reeks. And I say to people like that, stop the madness, please. Even the closest people want you to stop. They just don't know how to tell you. Listen, listen to ourselves. Let your own ears hear what comes out of your mouth. Just take, it a, take a sampling of yourself and 
See if worldly confidence in whatever career field or whatever it is that you're in has grown in the inside of you to a point that's unhealthy, that's coming out of you in a way that's causing more destruction than it is bringing wisdom and health. If you really truly want to live second, then you have to lay down that wisdom and you have to lay down that knowledge. And that's what the Apostle Paul really began to learn. And in 1 Corinthians, he said this about his life. He says, I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching, they were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul, in our day and language, uh, in a day and age, would have like a PhD in biblical studies. And he says, I came to you and I laid all that down, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. I laid down my earthly wisdom, and I said, God, unless you fill my mouth with these words for this next sermon, it's going to fall flat. Unless you fill my mouth with the words for this next conversation, it's going it's to end in decay and death. God, unless you move in my midst, no one's going to find the miraculous work of healing or any other move of your spirit. God, unless you show up, this confrontation's going to escalate, and it's going to get to a place that's going to be out of control. God, unless you lead me. But if my own wisdom, my own knowledge, and what my own accolades are lead me, my PhD of biblical studies or your PhD of whatever it is, then we have the ability for death and destruction to happen around us. Why? Because we're trying to live first. We're trying to live first. So if you want to lay, lay down that worldly confidence and really truly walk in a gracious attitude before God, here's a few things you might want to, you might want to consider. Never forget, never forget which wisdom is more powerful, God's or yours. See, God's wisdom created the universe. What's your, what, what has your wisdom created? In comparison to God's wisdom, what is it that your wisdom has created? 1 Corinthians 3.19 says this, for the wisdom of this world is what? It's foolishness to God. So even if you came up with one or two things, it's still gonna be foolish in comparison to what God's created. If you wanna lay down that worldly confidence and live that humbled heart before God, then constantly recognize who your promoter is. Your promoter needs to be God, not you, and not even others. I want you to try something. It's a little weird. I got it. I did it this week, though, and it's freeing, all right? So you ready for this one? I want you, when you go home today, I want you to go home. I want you to walk up to a mirror in your living room, your bathroom, or wherever. I want you to stare into that mirror, and instead of saying what you normally do, like, man, you're the most beautiful thing I've seen all day. Instead of saying, whoa, Man, you're amazing, all right? So instead of saying that, which I'm just joking, okay, except for a couple of you. Instead of, saying, instead of saying that, I want you to look into that mirror. I want you to lock eyes with yourself, and I want you to say, Jesus, I love what you're doing in me and through me. Just try it. It instantly puts you as second, and it puts Jesus as first. And that's how God wants you to live anyways. You know, another thing is, if you're going to break the curse of having this worldly confidence lead you and letting God's wisdom truly lead you, you're going to have to treat wisdom like a commodity. It's something that you, you have to keep going back to the giver, the source of it, often. And keep, keep gaining a fresh dose of it. Keep gaining a fresh insight 
of God's wisdom. You have to keep going back to the source or otherwise what happens with your wisdom is that it could even be God's wisdom. I'm saying God's wisdom is in your life and you just don't keep going back to the source. It grows old and stale. It's something that has has a shelf life to it. It's something that you have to keep humbling yourself and saying, God, unless you lead me, unless you lead me, unless you guide me, unless you go before me. And it's that kind of attitude. That's what God's looking for. But lastly, try investing your wisdom and your knowledge into something that's bigger than you, where you're not going to get a return or a reward. Like maybe you know, volunteering, you know, with some kind of a teen mentor program. Volunteering down at our Jubilee Center in Kearney or, you know, finding a, a shelter in North Platte that, you know, might have a place where you could go and you can volunteer and you can serve. It, it could be, you know, giving, giving some finances to our missions, um, you know, uh, ministry that we have here that, you know, funnels those, those funds and it empowers missionaries all around the world, places that you'll never go, ministering to people you'll never see. It's being a part of something that's bigger than you. Being a part of something that is, you don't, you're, you're probably not going to ever get a reward for it. You're probably never going to be, you know, announced about it. But it's just being a part of using your wisdom and your knowledge to give away your life. That's what, that is what Paul did. Paul said, you know, in those earlier verses that I came not with that PhD of biblical studies that I have, but I came in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you want to know why? I did this so that you would trust not in me, but in God. The ultimate reward of teaming up with God is that people follow Jesus and they don't follow you. When you and me live second, that's when Jesus can shine. In these next few moments, you're gonna hear a testimony from a friend of mine who normally sits behind a computer and runs the slides that you see in the venue in North Platte and even here in our main auditorium. He even helps me create those things. A great friend. He's here today to share his personal testimony with you and to be transparent, to help you see his journey of how he's been dying to himself. He's, he's been trying to live second so that Christ can live first. Would you please welcome my friend, Craig Bennett. I grew up in a small town of Bertrand, uh, not too far away. Everybody knew everybody, it seemed like, in that town, and probably everybody knew everybody's pet's name, in fact. Um, But, you know, growing up in that small town, I was uh, the oldest of four kids. I had two sisters and a brother. I had a mom and dad who provided very well for us, worked hard. Dad is a carpenter. Mom is a homemaker. And mom made sure that we went to church each Sunday. She made sure we went to school, Sunday school. And, um, you know, I learned scripture. I knew of Jesus, but I never really knew Jesus. And one of the things that, that I would tell you is that um, growing up in elementary, I struggled with problem of stuttering. And it was something that I didn't know then that was going to affect me clear into my adulthood. And one of, the, one of the things that I would tell you is that, you know, words can be so cutting. And I was kind of like Mel Tillis on steroids. I would take one word and turn it into a whole paragraph. And, um, but it was something that I was going to be bothered by the rest of my life. I wasn't going to want to talk in front of people. I didn't want to communicate with more than maybe one or two people at a time. And uh, in high school, I dated a gal for four years and 
we were married for one, and by the age of 20, I was divorced. And um, it was probably the greatest and biggest loss that I had had at that point in my life. And, and um, you know, I know that God puts the importance of unity in marriage. And for the next seven years, I poured myself into, into my work. And, um, you know, I, I, I worked behind a computer screen, writing programs and doing computer-aided design software for an engineering firm. And, and um, I still wasn't being transparent. And I finally went and seen a counselor, and, and she kind of started walking me through of just being able to talk about your own feelings, something I was not comfortable about doing. She put me in a group with other people going through the same thing of, about being divorced, and I, I still didn't feel comfortable. It's like, you know, I couldn't talk in front of people about my own feelings. And so I began journaling, and I began writing... I began writing prayers to God. I began, began to communicate with him. And um, what I didn't realize then is that <clears throat> what I didn't realize then is that he was communicating back to me through a pen and paper. I would have never guessed you know, that he could, he, could, he could make it so personal to me at that time. I remember re- rereading things that I'd prayed about and kind of forgotten. I'm sure you all have. And going, man, I forgot he answered that prayer. You know, how great that was. Well, Years later, I met Audrey and married, and um, we have two boys, Jonah and Nolan, and, and she was going through a class called Evangelism Explosion. It's a way to learn how to share your faith. It was a way to ex- share your testimony with other people, and she was trying to get me to go through it. I said, there's no way I could go knock on somebody's door, and this is, I can't even do this in front of somebody. Finally, I caved and went, and... Um, I ended up being involved for 10 years. I ended up even teaching the class. But the greatest joy was being able to being able to use your testimony, what God took you through, and to see others know Christ. You know, um, that's probably the greatest joy, is knowing that you can, can use what God's given you, your story, something that you can't be taken away from. God used me in so many ways and still does. You know, I was still working, building presentations for my engineering firm, but yet I was behind the scenes building presentations for the past 15, 20 years for church. I don't know which was really helping me grow more. Was it the church honing my skills at work? Was work honing my skills here? It was kind of like iron sharpening iron. I began talking in front of and presenting in front of city councils, planning commission, government agencies, community groups, even corporations and big corporations such as like Facebook when we've done projects for them. And I know that I would not be, I would not be at the place I'm at now if I wouldn't have gotten to the point of allowing God to speak through my pen, allowing God to to really come to life in me. I wouldn't have been able to to be here today, probably talking to you as well. But I would say this, that God has used those opportunities both at work and both here behind the scenes serving to sharpen each other. I know that he didn't want my abilities. He just wanted my availability. And so my name is Craig and I am second. Let's bring this really to a close. 
like Craig, you have a choice. Are you going to keep living first and just walking with what you can see, grasp, understand, and figure out? Are you going to surrender and say, God, you are bigger than me, and I'm going to start trusting you and walking with you? Solomon, and when you read the, the account of his life, it's wrapped up in 11 chapters, basically. And 10 of those chapters, you see a godly man. And you see a man that's submitted to Christ. You see a man who's using what God has given him to advance God's kingdom. The last chapter gives us the rest of the story. It shows us where he starts trusting in himself. He becomes very confident, overly confident in his worldly wisdom. And he starts making decisions on his own that end up basically overshadowing every great thing that he did with God. And just like Solomon had a choice of whether he was going to finish the race and win living as second, just like Craig, just like myself and so many others, you're faced with that choice today. No matter where you are in the spiritual race, how are you going to finish it? Are you going to finish it with Christ as first? Or are you going to finish it with you as first? So my challenge to you today is simply this one question. Where are you trusting in your wisdom or your knowledge more than God's? In what sector, in what section of your life are you trusting more in your wisdom and knowledge versus God's? And wherever that is, and in whatever auditorium you're in today, I want you to bring that piece down to the altars in the front of our auditoriums. Kneel down, submit your life to God, and go back to that age like Solomon was at age 20. And say, God, unless you show up with a humble heart, unless you show up, I can't, I can't go anywhere. With that desperate heart. And come before God saying, God, I want you to receive the glory and the praise. It's not about me. Where are you leading and not trusting God's wisdom. Wherever that is, that's what these altars are for today. Bring your life down, humble yourself, lay it down, and say, God, I need to start trusting you in this area of my life. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father, we know that your wisdom is greater than ours. Your ways are much higher than our ways. Lord, your wisdom is grand and our wisdom seems like foolishness when compared to yours. Lord, I thank you that even though our wisdom is like foolishness, Lord, to what you know, Lord, you love us and you desire a relationship with us. Lord, you literally, you made us that way. You made us in such a way that, Lord, we need you. And it doesn't matter how much we grow to know or how many accolades we have or letters behind our, our name, it doesn't matter because on this earth, God, our wisdom compared to yours is, is minute. We need you. Solomon needed you all the days of his life and he paid the price for weaning away in those last years. May we not fall away in the last years of our life. May we not fall away at 20. May we ask you for what really matters and that is you lead us. You guide us. Jesus, you be first, and we're going to be second. In Jesus' name, amen.